0: Hello fellow movie lovers and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a red-headed stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson.
1: And I'm Andy Bowell and today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review the 1983 vampire romance movie The Hunger.
0: Dun, dun, dun.
1: <laughs> so this movie, um, you know, I always put in a, a soundtrack drop. I always put in a little bit of title music. Um, this movie is full of classical music with one, like, indie punk goth opening number. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I just got to get this out of the way. I... This entire movie, the entire aesthetic of this movie, had me sitting here thinking Depeche Mode, Depeche Mode, Depeche Mode. If this movie had come out four years later, when Depeche Mode was actually like blowing up and big, that would have been every song of the soundtrack.
0: I agree wholeheartedly. I'm actually a huge Depeche Mode fan, so when the opening song played, I was like... This isn't the cure. Is this Depeche Mode? <laughs> it's, Bau- it's Bauhaus, which is random as all hell, but...
1: Bauhaus, who apparently got discovered from this movie because Tony Scott, the director, saw them in a bar and was like, yep, that fits.
0: Tony Scott, Ridley Scott, any relation?
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, I was going to have this big whole setup about how this is the first ever feature movie directed by Tony Scott, Ridley Scott's lesser shittier brother is what I was going to say because I I don't like the man's career very much as a whole like he does a bunch of garbage action movies he did days of thunder with Tom Cruise I I was so prepared to crap all over Tony Scott and then I kind of loved this movie (laughs) so I can't
0: well, I was going to say it's a bisexual vampire lore lore love triangle starring David Bowie. And I'm like, could this movie be any more Andy and Stephanie meet in the middle? I mean... It really can't.
1: It, it, it really cannot. <laughs> I was so here for it.
0: But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So in case you missed the movie, The Hunger is the story of Miriam a vampire whose lovers never age until they do all at once. Miriam's entanglement with Dr. Sarah Roberts leads to the demise of the femme fatale and the rise of another.
1: I loved this movie. This movie was so damn pretty. This movie is somewhere right around my top 10. Definitely top 12. That is how much I liked this movie. And I didn't think I was going to like this movie because of some conversations that you and I had after you saw this movie.
0: (laughs) Okay. I always want to be fair. There is a lot going for this movie. But I was whelmed because, first and foremost, what matters most to me in movie perspective, our listeners will know if they're at all familiar with our podcast's story. And the pacing in this movie, Andy, is so damn slow. It takes ages to get to the final thing that's actually happening.
1: It does, yeah. I... I... Make an argument that slow is not bad. I I think just because when you really break it down, not a whole lot happens in this movie. It is it is so stylistic, it is so it, it knows what it is in a way that Plan 9, for instance, doesn't. Plan 9 uh, <laughs> is a awfully paced, horrible movie. This is, this is a slow movie, but it meant to be a slow movie, I think. I, I would argue more shit happens in Plan 9 for Outer Space, to its detriment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, that's a really helpful way to put it, because the moment you said that, I was like, how dare you compare this beautiful movie and then i realized i'm getting defensive of this movie that i thought i was kind of underwhelmed with i i've
1: never i never come on here and like make it my goal to undermine your opinions i'm always da- <laughs> like 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 as my as my co-host we are allowed to have differing opinions and butt heads over a film but i always get a little bit happy when you realize maybe you like a movie even a little bit more than you thought you did
0: <laughs> okay so Here's the thing. This movie has a lot going for it. Visually speaking, it is a beautiful movie. Um, we talked already about Depeche Mode, and there were so many times where I was like, oh, this could be a music video yes. at certain points. There's lots of... You know, we, we made fun of Joel Schumacher when we talked about Lost Boys for, like, he shot it like a damn music video. But there are so many moments in this movie where I was like, Oh, this is this is shot like a music video. It's very art house. Um, there's lots of longing, lots of like white gousy gauzy gauzy Ga- gauzy gauzy sex i scenes. yeah gauzy i think <laughs> the sex scenes are very like white fabric floating in the wind kind of situations
1: you know you you bring up joel schumacher you bring up it being edited like a music video and i completely agree and where i hated that in lost boys i i loved it in this one like the exact thing i wrote or, or was telling my wife was this is like inspired by mtv but in a good way Mm. the 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 random cutaway flashback sequences that you know there's there's nothing there's nothing sonically to tip you off that this is a flashback it's just all of a sudden david bowie's in a powdered wig or catherine devoe is in egyptian attire like that's it and it's only for a second and there's so much that is like it's, it's being so tonal. It's, it's showing you how it wants you to feel without telling mm. you.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: adored that. I was so here for that.
0: Well, and I love that you were here for that because that scene where David Bowie's wearing a powdered wig made no sense <laughs> until like 20 minutes later. And that for me was one of the detractions because I was sitting here like, wait, what's happening? But I mean... <sighs> For me, this is a hindsight twenty twenty movie. I enjoyed it a lot more. I think I'd enjoy this a lot more in a rewatch situation. Sure. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. And and I want to so, I want to lend credit to your point because like there's a reason this movie is hovering in my top ten and not like definitively in my top ten. Um, mm-hmm. This this movie is so damn pretty. And it and and that is a massive pass for me. Anybody who's listened to all of our episodes will know. But um, there are some elements of the plot that are incredibly hand wavy. I like that it doesn't mm-hmm. tell you, okay, this is where vampires come from. But there were a lot of aspects of the vampire lore for this movie that I wanted more of. And there's there's the whole. Um, side setting piece with the uh, monkeys being experimented on for time lifespan thing. And I'm, I'm having legit trouble concisely wrapping up that part of it because Mm. it was so like vampires are fantasy. They're, they're, Mm goth fantasy but they're fantasy and the whole bit about the scientists like figuring out the the key of accelerated aging and cellular decay was pure science fiction and totally nonsensical and i did not like that
0: so it makes me think of have you ever seen the fountain
1: it's been a minute but yes
0: i'm i'm really surprised we haven't talked about the fountain yet For this to successfully pull off both fantasy vampire lore and science medical lore, Mm -hmm. I think it would have needed to be either the length of the two, I think (laughs) the fountain is like the two hours and 15 minutes that it is, to pull off the connections and everything that goes into that movie, or this movie needed to be shorter and needed to be like a 45 minute short for me to really appreciate the pacing. Like either cut Mm, out the science perspective completely. And the only reason you can't do that is because that is logistically how Miriam meets Dr. Sarah. Right. Um, And so that's the only reason that she needs to exist. And also that David Bowie Ties into it, but I also felt like David Bowie's plot could have been an intro sequence, like the first 15 minutes of Up. Oh,
1: see, I was going to say, I legitimately wanted more than the last day of John Blaylock, David Bowie's life. Like we we get you know he him and him and him and Catherine Denevoe uh, open the movie in the nightclub and show that they're vampires and then like the next day he has the aging affliction and and you know gets his fate that all happens in the span of like at most like forty eight hours, um, and I I yes. legitimately could have done with. 10 more minutes of what David Bowie's stakes were. He does a great job of of laying out the stakes himself. This is his third film role, not counting, like, minor projects and cameos. And he is amazing, because of course he is. He's fucking David Bowie. But I could have done with the movie, establishing more, like, this is the vampire heaven afterlife this man lives in, and then it all gets taken away.
0: Interesting. Part of me kind of wonders if that might be might have to do with the pace at which Bowie's life is established, because prior to his, as you put it, aging affliction, when we do see him, it's very fast-paced. He's bringing people home to get seduced... Um, And to feed. Then he showers after with his lover. And that's the only normalcy we see of his life. Right. It's incredibly fast-paced. And the shower scene between him and Miriam is incredibly quick. So... There's not... That pacing is wrong for me, too. Because it's not enough to establish him... As important to me.
1: Sure. No, exactly. I agree. I agree with you there. Like we we needed. Th- this movie is a tight ninety-five. Like this is a yeah. this is a completely average, acceptable. Like you've you've got like a half hour to play with before then it's like okay two-hour movie justify yourself. Um, <laughs> and and in that half hour, I would have given. 15 more minutes of David Bowie, like, like show, show his life a little bit more, maybe show how he got seduced in the first place through artistic flashback. And then I would have had another, like, 10 minutes of Catherine Denevoo and Susan Sarandon, like, having their... Incredible sexual tension and laying out (laughs) how vampirism works in the movie.
0: Yeah, a little more establishment of roles would be nice because there is definitely a shot where Susan Sarandon and Catherine Denevoe are having sex and you can see Catherine in the mirror. So I'm like, okay, hold on. What vampire lore are we following? What are the rules? <laughs> she definitely walks around in the middle of the daytime.
1: Right, so to see. I was thinking about that when Jean was walking home from the hospital. I was like, okay, it's overcast, but I mean.
0: But, like, it's still okay. Right. Yeah, the the rules are unclear. And I think there's a lot that you can get away with for other types of monsters. But because rules for vampires are so common in pop culture and so known. I think that's one of the things that I'm like, gosh, we, what are we following here? What are the rules? What What's happening?
1: Right. Because, like, okay, the blurb on the back of the box calls Miriam an Egyptian vampire. Sure. And it was 83 we can have a conversation about the idea of casting a very white French actress (laughs) as an Egyptian. My own headcanon was that she was older than Egypt and just, you know, like a Highlander. She found herself in, in that era at that time, but that's not what the movie establishes. The movie calls her an Egyptian character. They make the onk such an important symbol of the film and then Mm -hmm. never give anything about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which bothers me that that's a throwaway thing because there is so much lovely symbolism behind the Ankh as a breath of life. Um, It talks, the symbol of the Ankh is basically a symbol for the existence of an afterlife not necessarily everlasting life, like the movie says, which kind of bothers. Um, but there's also this kind of toss away, oh, it's this and it's exotic. So we're just going to ignore it and barely mention it. Yeah. Not really deeply rooted in anything.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And so, I mean, you know, like I said, it's not a perfect movie. There's definitely some plot issues to dig into, and I, I don't know if we're quite done with them. But I'm reflecting on what I liked about the movie. This this movie, this movie is so, it's cool, it's cool, yeah. it's pretty. Like the costumes. This is a great oh costume God. movie. Yeah this this movie is amazing for the clothes on the actors. Um,
0: Susan Sarandon's coat? Gimme. Susan
1: Sarandon's metallic green coat is everything. As is David Bowie's, like, Depeche Mode outfit. Like, I was sitting here feeling things I haven't felt since James Spader, to be perfectly honest.
0: (laughs) I was gonna say, do you have a new crush? But your crush on David Bowie is My crush on
1: David Bowie is (laughs) well-established and has lasted my entire (laughs) life, so... (laughs)
0: Okay, so speaking of your crush on David Bowie, something I only know because of you and because of your podcast with Alexander, LHR. Um, there's a line that the character of Alice just kind of tosses away and had so much more meaning if you know about David Bowie. There's a child um, that the character of Miriam and John um, give music lessons to, and then david bowie's character later on ages prematurely and alice comes over and david bowie looks like an old man he's still the same person alice says are you sure you guys aren't this are are related at all you have the same eyes given how david bowie has two different colored eyes i thought that was a really pertinent moment that just like is only there for people who really love david bowie
1: right yeah, and it's such, it, it is such a fun, like, little Easter egg there. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm trying to remember, I don't, I'm trying to remember if they gave him contacts, but I guess they must not no. have. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No, they haven't. Because there was one shot where I saw it and I was like, oh, yep, sure, sure.
1: Yep, absolutely. No, I, I adored that. Um, David Bowie put my butt in the seat. Like, I don't know if... Like don't get me wrong, Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon are excellent in this film, and and Susan Sarandon between this and Rocky Horror is like a stealth, like <laughs> wild child, super sexual actress. But I don't know if erotic lesbian vampire romance starring the two of them alone gives me the same like oh I'm gonna I can't wait to see this as. <laughs> also with David Bowie. <laughs> there. Yeah. Um, real quick, one last thing about the uh, costumes in this movie, because they they are just insane. And they're insane because the costume designer um, settled for nothing less than perfection. Uh, it was a woman named Milana Canyonero, who I, I'm not familiar with. I'm not so much a... a costume designer nerd. This woman flew to Rome in the middle of shooting just to make sure that a scarf that John Blaylock wears is made out of the actual material the scarf would have been made out of.
0: Oh my god. No one else would care that much. I love that so incredibly.
1: It's not my Oscar, but it could have been. It demands commentary. Like, like this movie was so damn style over substance in a way that Lost Boys wasn't for me.
0: Okay, so this is the second time we've brought this up. So let's just get into it. What makes this movie better than Lost Boys?
1: Yeah, because I'm trying to, like, compare and contrast. I think, for me at least, establishing that I liked the slower pacing, um... Mm -hmm. This movie was so much more mature for one thing. Mm-hmm. We don't have we don't have half of the cast being like young children or <laughs> a young children's mother there is one child Alice and you know I was getting ready to write her off as safe in the way 80s children are and then she got murdered so you know
0: (laughs) Uh, that scene was upsetting especially when John says please forgive me
1: and then murders her I was like oh my god the desperate decaying vampire like okay this is the only victim I can get maybe this will stop me and it doesn't is the kicker and it
0: doesn't but
1: going back to lost boys like neither of them explore vampire lore very well and i remember i really had an issue with that in lost boys and to be fair i still have a bit of an issue with it in the hunger um they are both like in a goth culture but they're completely Mm -hmm. different like ends of the goth scene
0: like lost boys is like punk goth right so it's it's barely goth it's more punk than goth yes and the hunger is the exact other end of the spectrum where it's almost the romantics like deep in the poetry scene of 18th century the romantics goth so we're talking like flowy shirts we're talking keats and byron and all of the poets that i know way too much about (laughs) it's like that other end of like overly pretty overly sentimental transcendentalist gothic
1: yes and you know what i think that i think this is what solidifies it the reason the hunger works for me and lost boys doesn't lost boys is almost like a Family Thriller. I know we talked about that. It was rated R. But all the stuff with the family and the kids and the mom and the home aloning at the end. Like it it, it didn't know whether to be like family scary vampire movie or like goth rock punk badass vampire movie. And so not knowing which to be, it failed at being either to me. The Hunger sure. sets out to be a romantic, goth, erotic thriller. And that is all it is. And that is all it tries to be. And for that, it completely succeeds. The timeless beauty of Catherine Deneuve. The cruel elegance of David Bowie. The open sensuality of Susan Sarandon.
0: Andy you're like really good at convincing me <laughs> that I like movies that I didn't think I liked because now that I'm sitting here I'm like if Lord Byron was alive today and I had to show him a vampire movie I'd probably show him this one and he'd probably be really into it sure <laughs> And then he'd probably try and start stuff and I'd have to be like, Lord Byron, no, I don't want your clubfootness all up in me. (laughs) Lord
1: Byron, put away your onk dagger thing.
0: (laughs) Stop it. Stop it, Lord Byron. We don't got time for this.
1: (laughs) So not knowing anything, is Lord Byron like William Wallace, where he's depicted as super handsome in media and was actually a bit of an uggo?
0: Um, so Lord Byron, yes, had a club foot and yes, um, was definitely harmed in the wars. Helmstever, like his tagline that some other woman of the age gave him, I don't actually remember who it was, mad, bad, and dangerous to know.
1: Mm,
0: Um, he was like the ultimate bad boy. So if you ever read the phrase like Byronic hero, it definitely means someone who is like Moody and interesting, but also, like, deeply sexual, but also deeply troubled. Um, So Miriam. And I feel... (gasps) So Miriam, to bring it back, like, the whole, I'm kind of good, but I'm good in this very specific, very morally ambiguous kind of way.
1: Right. The The thing I want to know more than anything from the vampire lore is if Miriam has control as the prime vampire, as the progenitor has control over when her lovers age or if she mm. doesn't, but knows it's going to happen because it's one of those two things.
0: So my thought was that like, She always knows it's going to happen, but doesn't know when. Mm. But she knows that it's going to happen. And so my question is, like, does that excuse anything at all? Because from where I'm sitting in the theater, it really doesn't. You still know, like... There were boxes on boxes on boxes in that attic. This bitch knew what John was going to have to go through.
1: They do establish uh, either in the um like back of cover blurb or somewhere in the movie Miriam is 6000 years old.
0: Yeah, so she's known. John What's going on?
1: Right. John was 300. So
0: Yeah that's not okay <laughs> well,
1: you know Vamp- vampire um and the like age morality of it is such an interesting concept miriam is such a flawed character she seems so apologetic when when jean ages the way he does she seems truly sorry she kisses him when he looks like he's 120 and he's begging for a kiss from her. Um, she, they, they make, she, she tells him that like, no, you, you cannot die. Like there is no way to die. And we discover that's maybe not true by the end of the movie, but it's understandable why she says that. Um, I like your idea that she knows that, the hit comes she just doesn't quite know when that that sounds about right because we never got a we never got an evil turn to camera turn to john as he's incontinent and lying in a coffin and give this wicked smile and saying oh you were so fun while you lasted there was never that evil moment that would have like solidified oh shit she's bad Thank you. Thank you for working that out with me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. And she's still evil. Fair. Because she's still no, like, to me, there's something incredibly, and I know I'm looking for far too many morals from my vampires, I suppose. (laughs) But to me, there's something so incredibly morally reprehensible about Knowing what's going to happen, knowing that you are, knowing that eventually, no matter, like, you don't know when, maybe the last person lasted a thousand years, and then the person after that person lasted ten, and then, who knows? Like, maybe it's completely, utterly random. But, it's still, you know at some point it's going to happen. After six thousand years, you probably have it down to somewhat of a predictable science that, at some point, all of my lovers do this. So it's still not okay that she continues to turn more and more and more people. And I get that it's survival technique, but at that point, I'd be like, okay, it's 6,000 years, I've had a good run, I can't keep doing this to people. But that's, I guess, the difference between me, a human, and her, a vampire.
1: Right, because, you know, and, and that's why I do sit here and wonder, okay, wait, could she control it? Was there something about Sarah that Miriam saw her and was like, I want to try that on, and the magic stopped working for John. At the same time, and, and maybe this is why I didn't take her as evil, um, 6,000 years, and the insanity that could walk hand in hand with immortality like this is why I'm, I'm really excited to eventually get into highlander and and discuss it more in that movie which is all about immortals um but like I, I don't blame her for continuously taking a companion and I agree it's not a good thing to not have the caveat of maybe not forever. There is some day you will just start aging forever. You're never actually going to die. And and instead trying to have the more I'm yours, you are mine, and there's no reason to think that we don't have forever together because by the time you know that's not the case, it's going to be too late for you. But I, I think you're right. I think the movie wants to explain that Miriam is evil, which is why she gets God at the end.
0: So let us turn to the second and, in my in my opinion, more interesting half of the movie, which is to say the lesbian half.
1: I know you're going to say that, and so just to get out of the way, uh, I <laughs> adored uh, the makeup effects of aging David Bowie. Like... Yes. The scene where he ages 10 years sitting in the lobby was amazing. And then watching him become old and decrepit and just as terrifying to look at as anything we've actually seen on this show. Like, that is how old he got. And yes. the practical effects were amazing. But the sapphic half.
0: <laughs> well, and okay, so actually, sorry, I'm going to backtrack us even further. We, we need to spend a minute talking about the... Attic full of boxes. Yeah. Uh, That's terrifying.
1: Yeah, because that is like... (laughs) That is every um, spiritual person... That is their biggest doubt nightmare. That Mm -hmm. the afterlife they have been told they are going to have isn't actually the thing and you sit in a dark box and somehow you're aware for all of eternity. Only this was literally like, I'm so sorry. Not only are you trapped in an ancient body that doesn't work anymore, but also now you're going to be stuck in a box and you have only the moans of my other lovers to keep you company. Uh, You're going to be awake forever. Sorry. That is terrifying.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's horrifying. That's absolutely why I prefer to be cremated instead of buried. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Just because I'd rather be alive as ashes. I don't know. <laughs> but that is that is horrifying. And that's the other reason why I think Miriam is so evil. Is Sure. Like, she could have turned to John and been like, look, here's the deal upstairs i have a chorus of corpses do you want to join them or would you be rather be outside
1: well no you know because here's here's here was my takeaway as she's walking him up the elevator and he's saying kill me and she's saying i can't i took that as no you don't understand i've tried light won't kill you if I cut off your head, your head is going to be conscious. Like it's part of the deal. You cannot die until I Miriam die, but I'm not going to tell you that part.
0: Oh, so you're thinking like she went through a process where she tried. I I would have to think with the
1: first couple, like, you know, the, the original vampiric lover is begging for, for death and like Miriam tries it and it doesn't work and how much worse is that? But the oh yeah. But the movie doesn't say one way or the other, so that's like that's literally my headcanon reading into it, and we don't know if that's actually the case.
0: But I'm also here for that <laughs> because <laughs> that's you. fascinating. You're welcome. Wow.
1: What have you done to me? There's some alien strain consuming my blood. That's right. I know that's right. What I want to know is what is it?
0: Speaking of brilliant, the sapphic energy in this movie gets turned up to eleven on a dime. Yes. It's sudden and it's quick.
1: <laughs> like, David Bowie exits the movie and then yeah, it's it's like it's it's the next scene, I want to say, yeah. <laughs> that Sarah comes into Miriam's mansion and is seduced.
0: Yeah, we um, we paused the movie shortly after the coffin scene with David Bowie. And I was like, oh, Alex, I don't know if I can handle this. And he turned to me and he's like, if it's any consolation to you after this, the movie gets incredibly sad. <laughs>
1: And, and boy, boy, doesn't it? I mean, it is it is such brilliant tension. It is such brilliant mm-hmm. acting between Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon. Um, I read on IMDb, it was in the script that Sarah was supposed to, like, drink all the wine and be noticeably drunk. And Susan Sarandon was like, no, no. It is vital to me that we establish Sarah takes a sip of wine and then does everything else of her own volition.
0: Damn, Susan.
1: <laughs> Susan, Susan Saran is kind of a badass, like
0: <laughs> I I have to love her. I have to love her. She's brilliant.
1: Um I, I loved, like, like the tension was appropriate, the, the seduction at the piano, the, um, the the moment where Susan Sarandon just disrobes in front of her and is like, oh, I so don't care. Here, have my shirt. Um, and then I, I saw in your notes, you appreciated this too, the cutaway from sex scene slash birth of a vampire scene to... Tearing open a raw bloody steak
0: mm-hmm. Nigh in twain like a pair of thighs.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely I that was lost on me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just a split open
1: i I am so here for the romance of the movie i I find it so interesting that in the opening height of the AIDS epidemic, um, we get this and mm. I have no idea how intentional or unintentional that was, but like this was 1983, it, people knew what was going on. And so it, it was certainly like mm. salacious, if nothing else to have, uh, a lesbian romance and beyond that, the other queer vampire romance movie that comes to mind is Interview with a Vampire, which came out <laughs> 10 years later. And like, Anne Rice Vampire Goth is such a crystal clear defined subgenre of goth. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this movie just wasn't 10 years too early.
0: <laughs> or if a young... Um, aspiring Anne Rice was watching this and going yes this movie is everything that I want to start penning because okay Interview with a Vampire might have come out 10 years later but that's movie rights, that's publishing dates so how quickly can we rewind to maybe she saw this and maybe a year later she started writing Yeah, and I don't even know if I don't know Anne Rice chronology super well Um, I don't know if like She wrote it, and then 10 years later, it got made into a movie. I don't know. But worth pondering.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I am certainly, I I certainly am here for that.
0: Yeah. You know who would know? Chris. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, he fact-checks your guys' podcast. Let's just have him fact-check our podcast. (laughs)
1: I mean, hey Chris, love you, buddy. Love you so much, is all I will say.
0: <laughs> um, along the line of other vampire lore, um, and metaphor specifically. There's some interesting metaphor with the need for blood and the need for um feeding in this movie. Mm-hmm. That I wanted to discuss specifically, since you brought up the AIDS epidemic, Sure. Um, it kind of read a lot of in a lot of scenes with Susan Sarandon that she was going through a drug withdrawal.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Because there is like there is sweating, there is shaking. She vomits at some point.
1: I, you know what? Spoilers. That is my Oscar. We're gonna. we uh, I'll. I'll mention it later. Oh! <laughs> Um, but no, it's like, I love it so much that I would rather talk about it now. Um, this movie has what I think is the single best depiction of blood withdrawal for vampires I've ever seen. Mm. Like, mm. because you're right, it is it is painful, it is visceral. There's the moment where uh, Susan Sarandon's boy, man, beau, whatever, um, you know, finds her in Miriam's house and she is soaked to the bone with sweat and and just mm-hmm. it, it looks like the most awful, painful thing. And then the pleasure and relief on her face along with his blood when she comes down the stairs in the next scene. Like I, I am looking at lost boys. You look at lost boys. It's a whole plot element where, um, uh, Jason Patrick is having that same, like craziness and, and going to eat his brother and, it just never comes close to coming off in the same, like, oh, holy shit. that That is stomach-wrenching kind of way. So, <laughs> let's see. Do we have anything else we want to talk about before getting into, speaking of Oscars, like...
0: Sure. No, certainly, um, speaking of Sarah... There and her level of desperation. There was one shot that I did want to bring up when Sarah kills Tom. There's a shot where, with her short hair and her bone structure and her facial expression, I don't know if this was on purpose, but if it was, it's freaking brilliant. She looks like David Bowie.
1: Mm -hmm. I didn't just the
0: way she's lit,
1: right? And I didn't reflect on that until seeing your note about it, and God, I hope that's intentional.
0: I hope it was intentional, too, because it, if if so, it makes a lovely commentary on, like, what do we desire from our lovers? Ultimately, we desire the exact same thing over and over and over again. Forever. And ever.
1: I like that a lot, because otherwise it really does kind of seem purely random to me. Why Sarah? Mm. Like, yes, Susan Sarandon's brilliant and beautiful, and the movie kind of tries to plot-explain that, like, Miriam is intrigued with the blood science thing, and, and that's how they cross paths, and then maybe there's just something about it. But other, like... Yeah, like, just just simply put, I, I wonder what it was about Sarah, but taking your point about like at the end when the hunger strikes, there's this same like vein of a person in there. I like that. I I can take that. And, and, you know, that reminds me of one point I want to make. Um, your husband and I got into a little bit of a spat, uh, through text message earlier than this. I really liked the science monkeys. As a element of foreshadowing. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And he did not.
0: (laughs) No. (laughs) That's not Alex's aesthetic. But I... Okay, so... I've already compared this once to The Fountain. And I think the reason why... Is there's a lot of similar elements for a... Like... The movies could not be more different. But there is that theme of monkey as prediction sure or animal as prediction so there's in the fountain there's a moment where there's a monkey suffering brain damage in the same way that Rachel wise yes character, yep think, yep um, is also suffering brain damage and the monkey um, relapses roughly weeks before... Um, Rachel Weiss's character does. Right. And so there is that, like, there is that echoing of, listen, this is happening to the animal. Eventually, this will happen to the human. And like I said, I appreciated that happening. I would have appreciated it more if the movie was like half an hour longer. Yeah. Because I'm here for you taking your time to make a point. But make it more thoroughly.
1: That's a very fair note, especially like, I'm I, I'm looking back over Tony Scott's career, and the Hunger stands out as a very like different kind of movie. One because it's not mm-hmm. action, and that is really his forte. Um, for for anyone unaware, this is the guy who directed Top Gun and like crimson tide and spy game and man on fire and all these excellent action movies um but none of them are subtle (laughs) none of them are like metaphory in the way that the hunger very much is and so maybe he tried this out and was like yeah this this isn't my shtick i'm gonna go make fighter plane movie (laughs)
0: And, you know, kudos. Kudos to trying something, realizing it's not your thing, and moving on from it. Blink and you'll miss it. Kind of life decision. Like, oh, I made that thing. But speak of blink and you'll miss <laughs> Speaking
1: it. Speaking of blink and you'll miss it. Returning to cult fiction.
0: <laughs> William Defoe is in this for all of 2.5 seconds.
1: <laughs> Literally. Like... Like this is a John Lurie and desperately seeking Susan kind of cameo role. Um, <laughs> it is the youngest Willem Dafoe has ever looked in a movie.
0: So the most normal Willem Dafoe has ever looked in a movie.
1: Yes, because that is the same thing.
0: <laughs> I'm just convinced that as this man ages, he becomes more and more goblin.
1: I, I mean, yeah, more more golem, certainly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh no! Oh no! Poor Willem Dafoe. We should write him a thank you note.
1: We should. Hey, thank you for being in this movie and not looking like you took your face off, stretched it out, and then put it back on.
0: Okay, you are not allowed to write our thank you notes.
1: <laughs> thank you for taking- thank you for being only kind of as creepy as you were in crybaby
0: thank you for being a friend
1: thank you for being a friend
0: alright the red wine has taken over let's wrap this shit up
1: fair enough <laughs> so um you know willem defoe is in this movie for all of a couple seconds that does make him eligible for a six degrees of kevin bacon did we use him
0: that is a brilliant segue let's start would you like to go first
1: i would because i think we started the same way and then um totally um so i was able to do this in two and i desperately would love i would love for there to be a movie where david bowie plays kevin bacon's father because that sounds right to me um, sure. No such movie exists. But Susan Sarandon was in Dead Man Walking with Sean Penn, who was in Mystic River with Kevin Bacon. Oh, uh,
0: very nice.
1: Thank you. Thank you. What else was, how else is Susan Sarandon <laughs> connected? Because I know that's how you started.
0: <laughs> I was going to say so we started in the same place. Uh, Susan Sarandon was in Stepmom with Julia Roberts, who was in Flatliners with Kevin Bacon. Ah,
1: okay. Ooh. Yeah, because
0: you know I'm going to go with Stepmom if it's available.
1: Of course. Yeah, why wouldn't you? And I'm sitting here wondering if <laughs> Flatliners is cult. Mm, I don't know. No. It bears examination. Speaking of cult, though, did you think The Hunger was cult?
0: Oh, my gosh. If this movie isn't cult, I don't quite know what is.
1: I agree. (laughs) No, I I totally agree. Um,
0: Yeah, it's weird. It's beautiful. It's bizarre. I've never heard of it before. Um. But apparently, when I looked it up on IMDb, like, there were so many people who were like, I love this movie. I show every girlfriend this movie to see if we're compatible. (laughs) I studied this movie for my film thesis. Like, this movie has a following. People have opinions about this movie. Absolutely.
1: This movie has a following. This movie is beloved by that art, romance, goth subculture. Um, when you can actually pry them off the couch in a poorly lit room reading poetry and get them in front of a a TV screen, this is something... Hey now. Hey now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, this is a movie that many a a goth teen has fallen in love with. I totally see why. Um, For all the reasons you said, uh, this is called, And this is also like you walked away from it with your initial reaction being, I'm so whelmed and man, okay, that, that wasn't for me. And I walked away from it being like, Oh my God, this movie is beautiful. And just Mm -hmm. take the style of this movie and just let me bathe in it for a while. This was so good. I can forgive the plot nonsense because of how, friggin good this movie was and and that kind of litmus test between two people is absolutely a mark of cult in my mind
0: okay fair enough i'll give you that one
1: (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate that um So we've we've talked a bit about, you know, costume designers. I think I didn't take his name, but the art direction designer um, was brilliant on this. Uh, This was shot, oddly enough, by a guy named Steven Goldblatt, who wound up doing the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. So there's a weird future connection there. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think this movie was up for any awards, and that's a shame. So, Stephanie, would you like to give The Hunger an Oscar?
0: (laughs) Sure, though after you thoroughly explained your beautiful Oscar earlier, I feel a little bit ashamed that my Oscar (laughs) is so cheap. But my Oscar for The Hunger goes to somehow weirder than Benjamin Button.
1: I'm going to need you to explain that one to me. (laughs)
0: <laughs> All right, it specifically just has to do with David Bowie's aging arc. But the way that David Bowie ages is somehow even more disturbing to me than the way that Benjamin Button ages.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. You know, you want to know why? It's because they're going in opposite directions.
0: <laughs> well, and that's fine. Like I can understand the idea of aging backwards like like any literature major, I am perfectly comfortable with the idea of Merlin aging backwards. It's more the idea of it happening literally all at once that, like, freaks me out. Sure. I'm like, oh, my God, he's 20 and then he's 80. I don't understand.
1: It is so such a nightmare scenario where you <laughs> sit in a lobby for two hours and you age literally, like, 15 years.
0: Yeah. Oh exactly. And so I think it's such an accomplishment to be a more bizarre technique and a more bizarre method of aging the Benjamin button or you know Merlin. It's it's an it's a feat almost. And uh, I feel it's worthy of an Oscar to be weirder than that.
1: That absolutely works for me. I I don't think there's any. I don't think there's such a thing as a cheap Oscar. It become maybe a cheap Oscar is a Razzie, but that that was perfectly justified. <laughs> you know, as I said, my my Oscar was the best depiction of vampire blood withdrawal. It does it better than the Blade movies. Um, you know, Interview with a Vampire plays with it, but at no point does uh, Brad Pitt ever make me feel as sympathetic for him as Susan Sarandon did, as she is just having the worst night of her life until she drinks her lover's blood. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, um, not every movie gets a quote, but this movie does. And, and I want to talk about them just because I think it's funny as hell. We, uh, we took opposite <laughs> parts of the same line. <laughs> so you, you go ahead and go first.
0: Want some lewds? I've got some in my case, which is to say her violin case.
1: Right. and that is the, the precocious Alice uh, not being murdered, but instead offering some quaaludes. And, and one of the one of the vampires like goes like, Alice, how, how do you have those? And that leads into my quote of Alice going, "My mama has every pill ever invented. She collects them. Which is so 80s white housewife.
0: <laughs> oh, poor Alice. Poor yes. Alice.
1: She she deserved better.
0: Oh my God, did she ever. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, speaking of the concept of forever, um, there is a reading rec that I would like to bring up by the brilliant Karen Russell, who I have a bit of a soft spot for. She's a wonderful short story author. Um, But she has a short story called Vampires in the Lemon Grove, which I would recommend to all of our readers. And it definitely deals with a lot of themes in this movie. Excellent. Um, But specifically the idea of how actually terrifying forever can be, especially when it comes to romance. So highly recommend. It's a great short story.
1: Excellent. Awesome. Not to undermine that reading, Rick, but I feel like it's important to bring up The Hunger was based on a novel. Um, and <gasps> uh-huh. as, as far as I know, Whitley Stryber isn't a bad person. Uh, he thinks aliens are real, but sure. other than that, like like what I'm trying to say is I, I don't think uh, Whitley Stryber is an evil person like Brett Eastman Ellis is. So oh, I see I'm soft recommending the book version of the hunger as well. But <laughs> if you know something bad about Whitley Stryber, then please let me know and disregard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: Well, um, you know, thank you, Stephanie, for talking about this movie. I, I really enjoyed it. And I'm very curious if we will enjoy the next film. Um, Every episode of Cult Fiction, we put our hands in Fate, that being the Hollywood crypt. And I'm very curious to see uh, what it has in store for us this time. We still have 306 movies to choose from on the list. I... My
0: God, you're lucky. Theoretically,
1: by episode 40, we will break that barrier. Um but that is like ignoring the fact that I've been building a list of additional movies. In any case. We, cer- and- we certainly have plenty <laughs> to choose from. Right now it's a 306, and the next movie we are going to watch on cult fiction is
0: Doo do 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 Number two hundred and three. Oh,
1: okay. 203 is uh, returning to cult fiction John Hughes, director of Pretty in Pink. Ah! And this time, we will be watching his 1985 sci-fi comedy, Weird Science.
0: I'm sorry, his what?
1: His sci-fi comedy, Weird Science. And I... Uh... What? I'm really curious if this is going to age well because the only thing I know about this movie is how two teenage boys uh, build a hot robot.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> I don't like it already.
1: This, the teen sci-fi comedy written and directed by John Hughes. Yes. Weird science combines two great traditions of popular entertainment. Inflamed Male Teenage Fantasies, and Frankenstein's Monster.
0: Mmm, great. Love that. You can also watch this movie, Chris, on Hulu, HBO, HBO Max, Amazon Prime, YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Vudu. So... That's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now.
1: But join us next time as we watch 1985's Weird Science and uh, heavily debate the most likely (laughs) deeply problematic concept of building the perfect woman...
0: Yikes. For
1: Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Hey, hey.